Well, hello there. I'm Karen Sander. You are listening to Aging Fearlessly, a program for the over 50s, those uniquely wonderful baby boomers. My aim is to educate, motivate and inspire you to embrace the exciting journey of life for decades to come. So stay tuned to meet a variety of guests who will share their stories and passions to help us gain insight into the ways to live a happier, healthier life. Welcome listeners, we're back for another week of Aging Fearlessly and thanks a lot for joining us. Do you know I seem to be linked up with so many amazing uh, men and women who support this station and my program and there's so much talent on the northern beaches and I was introduced recently by a friend of mine to Catherine DeVry and she's sitting here with me today and she is an author who's written eight books and they're translated into a dozen languages, Catherine? At least, yes. That's amazing. And you've been twice voted Keynote Speaker of the Year for the Australia Executive, Australian Executive Woman and you carried the Olympic torch. On the Northern Beaches on the day of the opening ceremony. Oh my goodness, that must have been absolutely a wonderful experience. It was amazing, the way the community all came together. And... Look, there's so much about Catherine. I'm in the process of reading her book, and we'll talk about that a little later today. But welcome, Catherine. Thanks, Karen. Great to be here. It's so amazing to have you here in the studio because, you know, I get to speak to so many amazing people, and you weren't born in Australia. What brought you here to Australia? Wasn't your normal journey, I suppose, in many ways. Um, Life was going pretty much according to plan. I was born in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Beautiful part of the world. Beautiful part of the world. A little bit colder than the northern beaches. And colder for longer. For longer, for sure. I went to university in the United States. And then the year I graduated from university, both my parents passed away of cancer. And I was an only child. And my best friend and her husband were on a teaching exchange in Melbourne. I thought, I need a best friend. So I came to Australia with a backpack. $200 and a one-way ticket for a three-month working holiday and I've stayed over 30 years. So I never speak on time management. (laughs) Oh, well, no, you wouldn't, would you? But look, honestly, what an amazing way to come to Australia. I I guess it was rather a, a difficult time for you. It was an incredibly difficult time, but the biggest problem of my life turned into the biggest opportunity of my life. And for the first 17 years before I won the Telstra Executive Woman of the Year Award, which is now the Business Woman of the Year Award, I never even told close friends that my parents passed away because I felt really awkward talking about it. There were no coping mechanisms in those days. But since my memoir came out and since I speak at conferences, I now tell total strangers to help them turn their stumbling blocks into stepping stones more quickly and maybe more elegantly than what I did. I love that phrase of turning your stumbling blocks into stepping stones because Mm. too many people just do stumble with them. My glasses are fogging up. Are they? (laughs) It's a pretty hot day outside the studio. I don't think it's menopause. It's just hot. A power surge, possibly. A power surge. Oh, I wish that air conditioning would flow a bit faster. So, yeah, stumbling blocks into stepping stones. That's... Well, I think we all face them, let's be honest. I mean, we live in one of the best countries, one of the best places in the world. But even then, and even 
people use the term first world problems, but they're still problems that we have to cope with ourselves. Yeah. And I think that, you know, problems are just part of the natural human condition. And whenever we're faced with a dilemma, and I certainly was, I was faced with a choice of looking backwards and feeling sorry for myself. Like, oh, this isn't fair. Why did this have to happen yeah. to me? And I went through a bit of that. Yeah. But nothing I did in the past could change the circumstances of the present. Yeah. So I had to change my attitude. And rather than look back, look at what I could do in terms of looking forwards. And I had the good fortune of boarding with an elderly couple in Melbourne called Frank and Betty Jansen. I read about them uh, in your oh, book. There you go. Well, Frank was a great Aussie. He was president of the Flemington Bowls Club. And he had this great saying. He said, Kath, shift happens. Uh, <laughs> he often left out the F when he yeah. said shift happens. Oh. <laughs> but that's why I wrote a book called Hope Happens, which yeah. is the opposite of shift happens. But he also said every day above the ground is a good one. And those nine little words helped me start looking forward rather than backward. What a lot of people don't realize is that when you start to look back, that's when you start to become depressed. It's a really, it's look, it's making you sad. Mm. Looking at your mistakes or looking at your problems is, you know. And we all have them. Yeah. We no, all none have of us, them. None no of one gets out unscathed. Absolutely not. And but we're all faced with a choice of being a victim from change or a victor from change. And only we can make that choice. We can wallow in self-pity or we can look at what we can do. And sometimes the options seem limited, but we should never be too proud to ask for help either. Yeah, and, and looking forward, as we know, you look too far forward and that induces a whole lot of anxiety. Sure. And, I mean, I've had to learn that the hard way. Definitely, Most of us do. <laughs> yeah, definitely learned that the hard way. And it causes so many health issues mm. for people. How did a Canadian come to win the Telstra Australian Executive Woman of the Year? Well, as I said, I you know started life in Canada. Well, I initially started life in an orphanage, but then I was adopted, and then it was my adopted parents who passed away. And so I started working initially when I came to Australia as a teacher. I worked as a waitress at the Gold Coast. I worked on a bauxite mine up in Weepa. That must have been interesting. That was interesting. Especially... Like then it would have been completely male, wasn't there it? There were 3,000 men in town and six women. One of the other women thought it was a gold mine, not a bauxite mine. But let's not go there. Oh, That's another I story. Like, I just have to say I like the odds, especially <laughs> these days in the dating circuit when there's not many men around. <laughs> so and then I was on a plane on um, from Weepa back to Melbourne where I was living at the time and the plane got stranded in Alice Springs with a flood. Now you never get floods in Alice Springs. No. But there was an ad in the Australian newspaper for a job for the Department of Youth, Sport and Recreation in Victoria and the whole ad said he will do this, his qualifications will be he, him, his and I thought I've got no chance of getting it but the plane was stranded so I got letterhead from the airline and with a handwritten note I wrote a letter to the Minister of Youth, Sport and recreation said you've got three days to hire me because I'm going back to Canada and I got hired by the Minister of Youth Sport and Recreation of a football player in Melbourne called Br the Honourable Brian Dixon and I worked for the department for five years we started the Life Be In It campaign and then I worked for a politician as a press secretary chief of staff for another Victorian politician and then I, we lost an election, so I was jobless again. And I had a mentor at the Melbourne Mount Eliza Business School and said, why don't you join IBM? And I said, oh, I don't like computers. I don't like technology. He said, it's great training. I joined IBM. They gave me marvelous opportunities in Australia, Tokyo, Hong Kong. I lived in Japan for a while. 
and then I came back to Australia and one thing led to another and I was nominated and won the Telstra Honestly, it, it reads like a textbook perfect situation, doesn't it? Oh, it wasn't it? always perfect. I can assure you of that. <laughs> it wasn't always perfect. Really? I, I bet you've got lots of stories. Ah, we've all got stories, but it's the chapters we write for the future that are the most important. There's one, and you don't have to go into this, but you met a very, very famous prince once. <laughs> yes, I did when I was working for the Minister of Youth, Sport and Recreation. I'd only been um, working for him for two weeks. I used to drink a fair bit because I used to be really nervous. I wouldn't say <laughs> to a frog unless I'd had a couple of drinks and my boss was going to this function with Prince Charles one evening and his wife couldn't accompany him so I accompanied him and I got really nervous so I downed all these sherries <laughs> and I'd never drank sherry in my life <laughs> and Prince Charles was saying things like you know how long have you been in Australia and you know who knows you might marry an Australian and I went never know your luck sport and my boss is going oh let's get out of here and um, oh, I wasn't really princess material but then I I didn't show up to work the next day because I was hung over and I mean all, all my colleagues at the Department of Sport were male and I had we always went out for a drink on a Friday night and they bet me five dollars that I couldn't go a week without a drink <laughs> It was double or nothing for a month, and I didn't have a drink for eight years. I was really worried that I was becoming an alcoholic because when my parents died and when I came to Australia, I was quite shy, and I was probably drowning my sorrows in alcohol. Yeah. So I didn't have a drink for eight years and because uh, I was really worried. That was a real wake-up call. Uh, I wasn't really princess material anyway, though. Well, <laughs> I, I admire you not having a drink for eight years, but I, I think that is a priceless story <laughs> about Prince Charles and... It was, oh, I, it was just gold when I read it. I went, oh, <laughs> my goodness, that's fantastic. Catherine, we, I've got a song here, Hope Happens. Can you tell me about that song? Sure. Um, you all know where you were on 9-11. I happened to be the keynote speaker at the World Airline Conference mm. on 9-11 to 1,600 delegates at the Brisbane Convention Centre. You can imagine the mood in the room. I was at Brisbane Airport on my way home and a friend called to say her mother had passed away of cancer that day. And even though my friend's a very compassionate person, that was a much bigger tragedy to her than thousands of strangers on the other side of the world in New York and Pennsylvania. And I've kept a diary every night since I was 16 of inspirational sayings that got me through really bad times. So I started writing a letter to my friend and the letter turned into a book called Hope Happens, which is the opposite of Shift Happens. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, this, and I'd published about six or seven books with publishers before, but I wanted this book to get out right away. And my agent said, no one will take you seriously if you self-publish a book. But I just, I felt so passionate about this book. So I, self, I was ready to go to print with it and self-publish it. I was, got a photograph from every continent on earth that I'd visited, all my own photographs. And I was down at the Photoshop in Manly that day to get the last photo from the Antarctic in the book because in those days it wasn't digitized and yeah. I had to go to the Photoshop to do it. And there was a lorikeet that needed rescuing under a car. And this young man and I rescued the lorikeet. It turned out this young man was a struggling musician. And I'd written a poem called Hope Happens. And I said to him, I'll pay you if you can put this poem to music, which he did, and thus the song Hope Happens, which is registered with APRA, and we've done all the right things, and it was a guy called Brad McKnight who wrote it, and some of his friends recorded it. It's just my poem set to music with these well, really nice young musicians. I'm really looking forward to uh, hearing this, so I'm going to turn it on now, 
and um, let's... Welcome back to 88.7 and 90.3, your community radio station. You are listening to Aging Fearlessly with Karen. Please go to Facebook and like the page Aging Fearlessly. So I am talking with Catherine DeVry, DeVry and we're back on air now um, because we're doing an audio as a video as well today. So tell us a bit more about your journey from childhood Canada, what you've been going through in life. <laughs> it's a massive journey. Well, as I said, I don't know what else to say really, but, you know, started life in an orphanage, got sc- girls should be seen and not heard in the generation I grew up Oh, in. yes. Teacher and a nurse for the highest socioeconomic roles a girl could aspire to in my yes. generation. I really admire nurses. Similar to me. Yeah. But I don't do bodily fluids, so it narrowed it down to a teacher. So I started working part-time when I was 13 because I knew it would cost money to go to university. And then I got a scholarship and I got a student loan and all of those things. And um, I played basketball and volleyball. I was always fairly sporty um, in between. I never had time to get into trouble. I was always so busy doing things. And you're still very sporty, yeah? I try to be very sporty, yes. I I enjoy sport. I enjoy activity. I think nature really nurtures us. And that's what my next book is about as well, Lessons from Nature about Resilience. I do know something about you. Did you go swimming with whales recently? Yes, a whole group from the Bold and Beautiful down at Manly, and I think you're in that yeah, group. Yeah, I am in um, that group. Went swimming in, last October and swam with whales in Tonga. Oh, um, and I, I, I was the worst swimmer in the group. I, I'm, I'm actually shark bait in the water. Everybody <laughs> else is so much faster than I am, but I just qualified... 18 months ago as a surf lifesaver oh, at Manly. Gosh. So I'm now a volunteer surf lifesaver. I'm really good on the whistle. If it's anything, a major rescue, I'll send out one of the fit young boys on the board. Whistle, they're coming. <laughs> <laughs> and then um, 18 months ago, I swam from Asia to Europe. I did the, the Dardanelles. And as I said, I'm really slow at what I do, um, but I just kind of like the ever-ready battery. I just keep on going. Yeah, well, last, pretty determined. this last year I just swam the Greek islands, island oh, to island. So, but I was – do you know when someone turns green? I went green when I heard about the swimming with whales and I walked around green for Green with envy. Oh. You should do it. I will. It won't be this year, but I will do I it at I've some stage. I think I've got state. a video that I'm not sure if I've got a video on my website as yet about it. I know I've got a video swimming with whale sharks. I've got a whole video on my website called The Wisdom of Whale Sharks. Oh. And that was amazing. That was at Ningaloo Reef. So the corporate world of IBM to a professional speaker. Yes. How did you do that? Well, IBM gave me wonderful opportunities initially in sales and marketing. Then I was their HR manager for Asia Pacific based up in Japan and then in Hong Kong. And up in Japan, all my staff were male and older than me. So that was a real challenge. And I didn't speak a word of the language, but they're a fabulous team. And I just had a reunion with them last year. And then I came back to Australia. I was totally committed to the concept of service and quality. In fact, my first book was on doing business with Japan, which we're hoping to relaunch for the Olympics and the World Cup in Japan, which are coming up in 2019 and 2020. And I came home to Australia, and I was totally committed to the concept of service and quality, which the Japanese were real leaders (laughs) in the whole theory of Kaizen. And I was signing off, I was running IBM's leadership development programs in Australia. Australia and signing off the checks on the speakers, motivational speakers and consultants we had all from the United States at that point in time. And I thought, 
I think I can do this as well because I'd lived and breathed quality service. So we had already committed, and I wanted to save the company money. It was like the Australian dollar was 50 cents to the US dollar at that stage. So I said, I can save the company money, you know, if we, if I did some of the speaking myself. And they said, oh no, we need an expert. And I so I've got, you know, similar qualifications. Anyway, to cut a long story short, I put, IBM had sent me off to Harvard University to do a short management course. And I said, a friend of mine is out from Harvard on sabbatical, Professor Barbara Nixon. We can get her very cheaply. But there was no Professor Nixon. I dressed up in a blonde curly wig oh, my goodness. and glasses. And You're I such put, a on an, put on an American accent and I pretended to be Professor Nixon. And you who pulled it off. Who would believe an American called Nixon 20 years ago, really? <laughs> And the man at IBM who'd hired me eight years earlier was in the front row and didn't recognize me. And they laughed and they clapped. At the end, I took off the wig, I took off the glasses, and I said, it's just me. Why don't we put, you know, why do we put people in boxes? And my boss said, that was risky. It could have failed. I said, it didn't, so chill out. And then IBM started charging me out to their clients, mainly the big banks, on a fee-for-service basis. And I thought, hmm, if they'll pay IBM, maybe they'll pay me. And I was going through a divorce at the time, and they, IBM wanted to send me to New York, and I just didn't want to go to New York, having been in Japan for a couple of years. So I wanted to be home, so I just took a risk and went out. I thought, I'll try it for a year. By that stage, I'd won the Telstra Award. Um, my book on customer service had come out. It was a number one best-selling book in Dimix. And I thought, I'll try it on my own. But I was quite security conscious. I mean, I'd been a teacher. I'd worked for IBM. I'd worked for the government. So I thought, I'll try it on my own for a year as a so-called motivational speaker. If it doesn't work, well, you know, I, I was being headhunted all the time. I was on the New South Wales Police Board during the Royal Commission yeah, in, I read in, that into too. corruption. So I knew my stakes were pretty high as a woman getting a senior role back in business. So I thought I'd try it for a year, and 22 years later, I still don't have a real job. I'm just writing and speaking all over the world now. I've spoken in over 30 countries. I've visited 116 countries, all courtesy of my amazing clients. I've just come back from Korea, where Rolls-Royce flew me over there to speak on quality and service. And I'm going, what can little old me tell Rolls-Royce about, about quality and service? I mean, But gosh. the irony is, Karen, I find it's the companies that are really terrific companies, they just want one or two tips to get that little bit better. The companies who really need help on service or quality or managing change, they think they know it all. It's honestly, you, I'm just going to say, keep reinventing yourself over <laughs> and over again. And that inspires me, you know, because I mean, I've always been, I've gone from train stewardess to teacher to whatever else. But you really reinvent yourself big time, and it's not fantastic. Not intentionally. I just see a need where I can help people. And like, I initially yeah. just spoke on customer service, and then my clients, mainly one of my largest ones was American Express. They said we're undergoing some change, some transformation. Mm -hmm. Can you speak about change? And then I wrote a book on change and which Sir Edmund Hillary endorsed, which I was really chuffed because he was my childhood hero. Oh. And, in fact, the royalties from that book go back to the school, the Himalayan Trust, to help with the schools and hospitals he built in Nepal. Because he wasn't the first man on Everest, just he built 26 schools and hospitals in Nepal, which many people don't know about. And I think life is about making a living and making our life worth living mm -hmm. as our living is being made and giving back as well. And, so, and then when my memoir came out, it took me into more of the inspirational, motivational market and same with Hope Happens. And I just, I just want to help people. And I think books and speaking can 
help people learn speaking, from my mistakes. I think speaking too really resonates because people can see you and, and, you know, and just see who you are and really bond with you. I have to lean forward because I have to read So I actually have to put my glasses on because I have to read, is it Hero, the song you chose? That was what, Hero yes. Lies. Oh, Hero, like Ma- Mariah Carey. Mariah Carey. I, yeah. I think it's just such a powerful song, Hero Lies in You, because I don't think heroes are the people on sporting fields. I think the heroes are people that are maybe you know, fighting bushfires or rescuing people's lives in yes. you know, Syria, places like that. But I believe within each of us, we have to look for the hero inside. And I often, when I'm feeling down in the dumps, I have actually compiled my own CD of inspirational songs, of my favorite songs. So I put that on. Um, and a Hero Lies in You is just such a powerful song because a hero lies in every single one of us. Yeah, but a lot of people don't choose to find that hero. No. hero. Sometimes that hero hides. You have to go looking for him. Yeah, well, we're going her. to a song now, which you're not going to hear, but here we go. And I won't sing. On a 90.3, your community radio station, you are listening to Aging Fearlessly with Karen. Please go to Facebook and like the page Aging Fearlessly. So I'm with Catherine DeVry today, and Catherine is so inspiring, and we're hearing about all the things that she has done in her life and there's one thing after another and it's really inspiring because I love Catherine people that get up and are doers and that they really purpose their life Mm. to doing good things for others but to making life interesting and to sharing you share all your speaking and your thoughts and your books with others it's it's a great thing I'm very, very fortunate to be able to do it. I mean, I work very hard. Everybody says, oh, you're so lucky you get to travel all over the world. And you, you get paid a lot of money just for a one-hour talk, or sometimes it's a half day. But it's not the one-hour talk. It's all the preparation that goes up, the intellectual property, the, the writing the books to give me the credibility in the first place. And I keep saying, you know, my boss is a bitch. And if it's like, you work for yourself, I'm going, <laughs> yep. Uh, oh, I work God. probably harder than – I'm very disciplined. I'm not the most talented writer. I'm not probably not the most talented That's why speaker. editors are important. Yeah. Yeah, yes, but I'm very disciplined because Bryce Courtney, who endorsed my yeah, memoir – Yeah, he did. I've got the book. Um, yeah, he, he was uh, – and Bryce was the number one best-selling Australian author. He said, story of hope and inspiration. When's the movie? Yeah. And uh, I'd love it to be made into a movie. And in fact, I know that Lion was produced by people on the Northern Beaches. So I'm hoping they might be listening to this because my memoir, not the corporate side, but the bit we haven't talked about with the mem- memoir was I, when I discovered my birth family many years later after... Um, I was working for IBM in Japan and 17 years after my parents died, I discovered my birth family. And I went from being an only child with no family whatsoever to one of 96 grandchildren oh. and great-grandchildren. So I haven't got to that in haven't the book. Got to no. That in the book yet. Oh, no, no. So I, I know what they do, those cold winter nights in Canada. Oh, so <laughs> I'm, I'm not even going to ask. And then I discuss, I've always loved horses and adventure, but my parents were European and never encouraged me in my love of sport and adventure. But when I first spoke with my birth father, I discovered where I may have got that because the conversation was the night of the closing ceremonies of the 19th. 1988 Calgary Winter Olympics and Calgary was my hometown in Canada and ever since I was a little girl I had a dream of being an Olympic athlete and even though I got 
went to university on a basketball scholarship and I represented Canada in volleyball. I never went to the Olympics because it wasn't an Olympic sport mm. for women in those days. But during the first conversation with my birth father, I realized where I may have got that love of sport and adventure because the conversation went something like he said, what do you do for a living? I said, I work for IBM. And I so said, this was on the phone. On the phone. It was the night of the closing ceremonies of the Calgary yep. Olympics. And I said, what do you do? And he says, I'm a rodeo cowboy. And he wasn't just any old rodeo cowboy. He was eight times Canadian champion and had been looking for me since I was six months old. So tell us Which the whole story. Which explains where I got yeah, my love you... of sport. Like it was in my jeans. My blue jeans. Oh. Sorry. Bad joke. <laughs> no, best I could do. No, I love it. So, so really he... He had looked for you since you yes, were but six there, months old. But it wasn't that easy in those days because there was there were privacy laws. There was no remember there was no yep. internet. Yep. Um, in fact, how I came to discover my birth family, I was in hospital in Japan, very sick, and the nurses and went, went next of kin. I went, <laughs> you know, I'm supposed to be this big tough corporate IBM executive. But I still miss my mom when I'm sick. I miss her hot lemon and honey and Vicks on the chest. And then they went, next of kin, you know, hereditary diseases. I went, I don't know. And that's when I decided I wanted to find my birth family only for genetic reasons. I didn't want any emotional connection. I didn't want any financial connection. I just wanted to find for medical reasons. And as it turned out, I ended up meeting them all and back in Canada. And it's been an, another amazing journey, which is like coming these two different worlds. He is a cowboy, me from the corporate world of IBM, him in Canada, me in Australia. And just, it was pretty emotional. Are and they I still also, alive? Uh, they, my father just recently passed away. He was still 81 and breaking horses. Oh, my goodness. When yep. a... Um, combine fell on him when oh. the hydraulics broke and my birth mother lived until she was in her 80s as well whereas I was sure because both my adoptive parents died of cancer and I've had my own cancer story of survival they both died when quite young so I was sure I was going to die young so by meeting my birth family I realized that they've lived a reasonably long lives. so that gave me hope and you you weren't young when you found out you were adopted no I wasn't the story of behind finding out was that difficult well I had to it was difficult because my dad died first and then my mom died you know within a year and to get her death certificate I had to get her birth certificate which was kept in a bank safety deposit box I don't even know if they have them anymore in the old days where you have to get a key yep. and you go down to the bank and they let you into this big room and yep. this big vault. So anyway, when I was finding her birth certificate, that's when I came across my adoption papers. But I, there, was, there were so many other emotions going on in my life. That was the least of my worries. So I just, I just parked that to one side. And 17 years later, I decided, why don't I just try and find these, who these people are? And were they together? You no, not at all. No. My birthday is the end of September, so go back nine months. We're talking New Year's Eve. Oh. And I'm not a party girl. Yep. Okay. So, yeah, interesting interesting story of adoption. It looks stranger than fiction. It really is. And I was very careful, right? It took me 17 years, as I mentioned, to write the story because I had to be very careful about what I said and what I didn't because it's my story of my journey some of them have slightly different recollections of some of the things that happened. Yeah, so but my birth mother um, left me in a motel room in Montana. And mm -hmm. I had an elder half-sister from a different father. And I'm very grateful to my birth mother because I don't know, it would have been very difficult for a woman in that era. There was, there were no, there was no support. There was no support for single mothers. And there was a huge stigma 
in a small country town where I grew up of having an illegitimate child. And I don't believe there's any such thing as an illegitimate person. I believe we're all legitimate, regardless of our circumstances of birth, our sexual preferences, our religion, we're all legitimate. But it wouldn't have been easy being and a single mother in so those days. So even in the school days, when in my school days, I was born in 56. So even back then, teenagers fell pregnant mm. and they disappeared. Mm. Seven or eight months. Yes. Just gone, come back, mm -hmm. children adopted Yes. by new parents mm -hmm. and that was never talked about no. and there's then they're, they're starting now to talk about those things that happen and they should uh, too yeah. and uh then my birth mother just like we have the stolen generation issue here this a similar thing with the indigenous people in canada then my birth mother claimed that she i was stolen from her by the social workers. So I've got a great deal of empathy for all people involved in any sort of yep. adoption in terms of ultimately anything has to be about the rights of the children, not the rights of the parents yep. and the, the best possible future for the children. And I am so grateful that I was adopted. And I'm so grateful to my birth mother that she left me in a motel room. And then you meet amazing people like Frank from yes. Melbourne as well. So you've got families everywhere. Family I, I do, of friends. Yeah, I do want to play another song, which is... Sorry, my I'm, I'm far away today from this. Oh, it's a grand march. <laughs> Tell me about... Well, you asked me about my... Yeah. To give, give four songs, and like I've got very eclectic taste in music. Yeah. Growing up in Calgary, Alberta, I can't help but like country and Western music, like John Denver... Um, Gordon Lightfoot, Ian yeah. Tyson. So, um, but I also, my parents being European, I was forced to listen to the New York Metropolitan Opera on the radio every Saturday afternoon, which I resented like crazy because I would have rather been out playing sports. And this is your birth mother? No, no, not my, no, no. These are my adoptive oh, parents. Oh, your adoptive parents. They're my Sorry, real that's parents. That's who I meant. They're Sorry, my real. real my real parents Sorry. are my adoptive that's parents. What, that's what I meant. And I'm really, you know, they're my real parents. So they were European. So I had to sit and listen to classical yep. music, and, and I hated it except for the triumphant march from Aida, which I think is just—it's music that. If you hear it, and I've subsequently been to see a couple of productions, it can bring tears to my eyes. It's just such powerful music. Well, I hope I got the one right because there was a few to choose from. So we'll just see how we go here. <laughs> Welcome back. You're listening to 88.7 and 90.3, your community radio station. To find out more, go to the website rnb.org.au. I'm speaking to, with Catherine DeVry and we've been covering off on all sorts of topics, but can you tell us about how hope happened? Well, how hope happened was, as I mentioned earlier, I'm not sure what we're, what's, we've said that's this gone to happens. Facebook or what's happened when we've been talking during the music's been playing, but um, I was the keynote speaker at the World Airline Conference mm -hmm. on 9-11, 1,600 delegates from around the world. And you can imagine the mood in Brisbane Airport. Mm -hmm. And my phone went off. It was a friend to say her mom had passed away of cancer. And to her, that was a much bigger tragedy than thousands of strangers on the other side of the yeah. world. So I started, I've kept a diary every night since I was 16 of inspirational yep. sayings that got me through tough times. So I wrote yep. a letter to my friend that turned in to the book and um, then had a song commissioned and a poem. And I've actually, I've even just, that was in 2001, 
And just last year in Mongolia, I was on a horse riding trip chasing some eagles, as you do. And I came across a tattoo parlor, which was pretty clean. <laughs> so I actually have a tattoo on my foot called Hope Happens. You didn't do that in Mongolia. I did do it in Mongolia. It's a great, it's super clean. I, I got referrals. And my one of my best friends said... I'm not going to ask you to stick your leg up. No, I won't stick my leg up in the air. Trust me, I'll show you later. It's very discreet. You can never see it when I'm on stage in my high heels. And you, you talk about aging fearlessly in your program. My best friend said, I can't believe you've done that. She said, you'll regret it when you're older. I'm going, um, how much older do I need to be? <laughs> like I've thought about this a long time. Yeah, yeah. Since and 2001. I've thought uh, about and it. And look, it means so and, much to you. So. And Hope Happens, actually, um, it's the littlest book I've ever written. But it's probably one that means the most to me because um, I was going through a really tough time. I was building a home about six or seven years ago. And there was all sorts of dramas with the home and the global financial crisis, etc. Mm. And someone dropped by on my Facebook page and she said, hi, you don't know me. So after, let's just backtrack a little. When Hope Happens came out, I went to the United States to sell it to Simon & Schuster. And I also gave copies to Michael Bloomberg, the mayor of New York. I gave it to the fireies, the police, the Salvation Army, people in New York that had helped. And, um, you know, I just really totally believed that this book could help people. Now, that might have sounded a bit grandiose. Um, anyway, I've, I've got subsequently got letters from prime ministers and presidents and governor generals about Hope Happens, but none has meant more to me than one from somebody called Sally in Seattle, who about a few years ago said, I'm just dropping by your Facebook page. You don't know me. I was homeless. The government was taking my kids away from me. I was in a drugstore chemist in um, US yep. terminology and the drugstore was going out of business and there was a little book for sale there for 99 cents I only had a dollar left that day I bought it I read it every day I made my kids read it I got a job I got my kids back and I thank you and God every day for Hope Happens so I've got all these like brag these letters from famous people but that's the only one I've got printed out and it's above my computer so I'm having a bad day at work. If I've had another book that's been rejected by a publisher or my computer's crashed and I think, why am I bothering writing? This is crazy. Yeah. I look at that printout from Sally and my next book is actually dedicated to her and I'm going to go and try and find her. Oh, that's awesome. Gosh. I'm just watching the time because we don't have a huge... Um, have you got one one of the songs that you chose? Is there another one that you particularly like? Because we haven't got a huge amount of time left. Probably when I wish upon a star. When I was a kid, we used to watch. We didn't have. We didn't own television. We were very poor, but we used to go to the neighbors and watch Disneyland, and that was the intro to Disneyland. When I wish upon a star, makes no difference for who you are. When you wish upon a star, your dreams come true. I think it is that if you're picturing and focusing on what can be and you mentioned before oh no it wasn't you that mentioned today someone mentioned a vision board today Mm -hmm. it's when you're focusing on those amazing things in your life when you look upon a star dreams come Mm -hmm. true or whatever you have to be focusing on sure yeah and sometimes those dreams are nightmares along the way but you you have to keep focused on where you want to go just like climbing a mountain you know, you want to look at your summit of success and it's oftentimes there's three steps forward, two steps back in mountain climbing um, and same in life. But you focus on where you want to go, not where you... You are listening to Radio Northern Beaches 88.7 and 90.3. 
your community radio station. So we're going back on air now and I'm with Catherine DeVry. And Catherine, we've talked about so many things, but you've trekked the Andes and I'm not going to say more. Tell me about that side of your your trekking and well, you talked about Mongolia. Well, Become a lifesaver. You've talked about that, but the Andes? We cycled over the Andes without a support vehicle a few years ago. I love travel because I believe that we're all the same everywhere in the world. We share the same hopes and the same dreams and the same fears. They might have different variations, but we all have our ups and downs, and we're all connected by the universal human spirit. So I've been to every continent on Earth. I've been to over 116 countries. And I'm writing a book called From Timbuktu to Kathmandu, Ooh, which will take that, that'll take a few years before that's finished about courage and kindness around the world. And I just love adventure. I've been to Everest, beyond Everest Base Camp. Um, trek to there really is such a place as Timbuktu. Yes, and it isn't. I, I have heard there is, and it nearly is the end of the earth. I'm here is to it tell really? you, it's pretty rugged. Did you rugged. take photos? Oh yes. Of course. So I'm, I'm going to ask for a photo to, <laughs> to see one at some stage because, yeah, yeah we all use, term, you know, we say our oh, Timbuktu, but mm. a lot of people don't really, know anything yeah. about Timbuktu. Mm. I've been to like Syrian refugee camps in Serbia. Um, I've, I just love traveling and I love meeting people from different countries and just learning that we really, you know, I don't know, all this conflict in the world, but basically... In our hearts, we're very much the same. I can. I, I've got one place you won't have been to. You won't be, have been down the salt mines of Poland, have you, Galicka? No, I've been to Poland, but not the salt ah, mines. Ah, well, I spent nearly a year in Poland. That's Did another you? story. Ah. But I, I worked down in the salt mines. Worked in the salt mines. Yeah, as a teacher to young children who were on film sets. So wow, that's another story. You should, but, you should be writing it down. Oh, um, sometime. Sometimes. We all have stories. We all have stories. We all have stories. But people but don't think they do, do they? And some people have very boring you know, it's, Everybody says there's a story in you, but in some people's stories should stay in them because <laughs> you're sitting here in the same old broken record, the same yep. story. Oh, woe is me. This is terrible. Um, but we've all got stories. We've all had ups and downs. But as I said earlier, it's the chapters we write for the future. We can't change our past, but it's the chapters we write for the future to autograph our own future and our own destiny. Oh, well, Catherine DeVry, I have had a perfect afternoon with you. <laughs> You're too and, kind. And how do people find you? Probably the best thing is on my website, which is www.greatmotivation.com or catherinedevry.com, but nobody can spell Catherine DeVry, so stick to greatmotivation.com. And there's demo videos on there. There's adventure videos of Everest Base Camp, Wisdom of Whale Sharks, various things. And thanks very much for the opportunity to be in Northern Beaches Radio. And I am yeah. so lucky to live on the Northern Beaches. Well, thank you. Yeah, we, we all are. So thank you very much for the listeners today for joining us, Catherine DeVry and myself on Aging Fearlessly. Until next time, cheerio. So this is it for today's program. It's time to say cheerio to the wonderful Northern Beaches community. Join me next week for another episode of Aging Fearlessly. And now for a song written by Nick Howard, especially for the listeners. This is Karen Sander. Have a fantastic week. And remember, aging is inevitable and growing old is a choice. 
The sun is shining bright outside. There's a sparkle in your eye. It's not all nine to five. It's a wonderful life. Let's go and climb mountains high. Swim across oceans wide. Time to waste. Gotta go get the most out of time. Don't be afraid. Like this treasure that you've got to find, baby. Don't be shy. Let's go and take that ride. Taste the sweet and the spice. Everything. Let your heart be alive, baby. Just let your heart come alive, honey. Let your heart be alive.